So hopefully you're all in a very good space at the moment, receptive, open, having just done a period of metta practice. And some of you I know Qigong, the energy should be flowing, the heart should be open, and hopefully the Dharma will sink in. <laughs> so you've done your part, now it's up, for me, up to me to do mine. What I'd like to talk to you about tonight is the four right or wise efforts, Samma Vayama. Right effort is, as many of you know, part of the Eightfold Noble Path, the Fourth Noble Truth. Um, When the Buddha talked about effort, this is mainly the description he used to describe effort. We often think of effort as what's known as virya, that, that quality of energy or ardor or even sometimes striving when it's a little unbalanced. But that's more a mental factor, one of the factors of enlightenment. When the Buddha talked about right effort, he really talked about cultivating the wholesome. That was his definition of right effort. Our mindfulness practice that we do here is an extremely powerful practice, as you all know. Uh, The practice of paying attention, of being present for our experience, of just observing what's going on moment to moment to moment. But sometimes I know for myself that I can observe something endlessly and I don't find a way to be free of it. It's still there, very much part of me, uh, some habit of mind or tendency very much a part of my makeup. Sometimes they're even quite subtle things that we're not aware of, some subtle underlying tendency or aversion or delusion uh, or greed that's present that's so subtle, even in our mindfulness, we don't pick it up. And so in that case, I think it can be really wholesome to practice what the Buddha called the four right efforts, to bring a more um, active, a more... Uh, invest more investigation, more reflection to our practice, so we really start to cultivate, instead of just observing what's going on, there's really an active participation in our spiritual practice of cultivating these wholesome states of mind and working directly with the negative or the unskillful states of mind when they arise. One of my influences uh, in giving this talk, a book that I've been reading a lot recently, is by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's written a number of books, and one of them is uh, The Wings to Awakening. And I found it quite inspiring to, to read uh, his uh, take on the Buddha's teachings. It's a book that talks about some of the main lists, as you all know, the Buddha loved to write lists. And uh, in this book, he goes through all of the lists that talk about practices that lead to liberation. And the four right efforts is definitely part of that. And he really brings out from the suttas the number of times that the Buddha talked about making this kind of effort, actually actively being involved in our meditation practice and cultivating, bringing about these wholesome states of mind and directly working with the negative or the unskillful or the difficult states of mind when they arise. So a much more active involvement than just the simple awareness or observation that can sometimes be our Vipassana practice. So, as I said, the the Buddha spoke about this constantly. It was one of his uh, refrains. He had a number of uh, top ten hits, and this was definitely one of them, talking about these four right efforts. And one of the teachings that I actually consider to be almost a one-line synopsis of the whole breadth of the Buddha's teaching 
is something like, help others if you can, don't harm other beings, purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And that, in essence, is the four right efforts, that of helping others and purifying the heart, not harming others. So these four right or wise efforts are to guard against or avoid the unwholesome or unskillful qualities or states of mind or tendencies that have not yet arisen. Second is to overcome or abandon the same unskillful or unwholesome qualities, states of mind, tendencies that have arisen, that are already present, that are here in this moment. The third one is to develop or cultivate wholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen, that haven't yet come to flower in our practice. And the last one is to maintain or enhance the wholesome that's already present. So when there is the wholesome present, to really acknowledge it and do what we can to make it increase, to make it stay, to make it last. It's one of those things that you can actually cultivate and try to make last. I know we're often told not to do that, but this is one of those small cases where it's actually okay. The other book that I've recently read that also um, inspired me to talk about this tonight is uh, a book that's by the Dalai Lama, interviewed by Howard Cutler, on the art of happiness. And so it really does seem, seem like there's a theme running through this retreat of happiness. So we hope by the end you're at least a little happier than you were at the beginning for all we've been talking about it um, and haven't gone in the opposite direction. But when I started to read this book, um, in the first chapter or so, I just started thinking, this is just about the four right efforts. And I sort of, I don't know, I, I thought it was a little prosaic. I mean, this is just about, you know, being nice and sort of getting rid of un- negative mind states. And it didn't seem that inspiring to me, um, a little prosaic, a little pedestrian. But then I reflected for a moment and thought, hey, this is the Dalai Lama. I think he might know something about cultivating wholesome mind states. So perhaps I should pay a little more attention and be a bit more open-minded. And actually, in reading the book, I really got a lot out of it. I really benefited from reading the book and have put it into practice already and actually used it um, in guiding people, and and, uh, they found it helpful too. And it's interesting that this book has been on the bestseller list for weeks now. I don't know how long, months even that the Buddha's teaching on the four right efforts, which you know, in some ways seems fairly arcane and not that well known, is up there on the bestseller list as interpreted by the Dalai Lama. I thought that was quite wonderful. So in this book, the Dalai Lama talks a huge amount. The main thrust of the book is about this necessity, the necessity of working with these difficult states of mind when they arise, because they are what block us from happiness. They are what prevent us from discovering the happiness that's there within. And he gives a lot of practical advice on how to do that. So that's a little bit of what I want to do tonight also, talk practically about how we can do this cultivation of the wholesome and the working with and abandoning the unwholesome or the difficult. So we're already actually doing this in our practice here. It's not like I'm going to be telling you something new tonight. Just the very fact of practicing mindfulness meditation is cultivating the wholesome. This willingness to be present for what our experience is moment after moment is a direct and definite cultivation of the wholesome. 
Every time we take the refuges and the precepts, as we do every evening in the chanting, as we did at the beginning of the retreat, we're cultivating the wholesome. We're cultivating right action and right view and right understanding. The renunciation that we're involved in here in the retreat, all the things we've given up to be here, is a wholesome practice. We've given up so many of the distractions of our lives and the ability to fulfill at a whim all of the desires that here you just have to look at and be with. So, you know, so many aspects of being on retreat. The effort that you've put in so far to be present, to be mindful, to be willing to look again and again a little deeper at what's going on is definitely cultivating the wholesome. And in our daily lives, the things we do, like daily practice, are also cultivating the wholesome. But this cultivation goes against much of the tide of our society. You know, you only have to just remember a little bit of what goes on out there in the world of media, film and television and and music and magazines, where it actively seems like people are cultivating the unwholesome. I mean, flaunting it, delighting in it, and, and encouraging other people to do so also. So this is a difficult practice because, as I say, we're going against the general trend of society out there, much of society, many people. And it's not an easy thing to do. It's not like we can just say, oh, well, today I'm going to cultivate the wholesome, and and off we go and happily do that. It's really a retraining of the mind. But what happens is, in this gradual process of cultivating the wholesome and avoiding or overcoming the unwholesome, is we just start to see more and more clearly the pain of being in and and especially indulging in those difficult mind states and acting unskillfully, the pain of having gossiped about someone and worrying that they'll hear what we said, or, you know, criticizing someone and seeing the hurt in their eyes and knowing that they've really been affected by what you said, by expressing anger and feeling, you know, the contraction and the, the fear that's come about in another being because of our expression of anger we get to be more sensitive to the pain that acting out of these unskillful tendencies can bring to ourselves and others. So it's a gradual process of learning. It's all too much like diet and exercise. I don't know about you, but two that I'm constantly working with. You know, they require effort and commitment to keep up, to get the benefits from that. You know, exercise seems to me like developing and maintaining the wholesome. It's really bringing about stuff that isn't normally there, like a lot of energy and and, uh, musculature. And diet is usually, unfortunately, about avoiding the unwholesome. (laughs) I was actually talking to Guy, my husband, tonight about uh, this talk, and he told me a wonderful story, um, again from the Dalai Lama, though not from this book, about a Tibetan monk who had come to see the Dalai Lama after years in prison, in the Chinese prison, and was talking about his experience with the Dalai Lama. And he said, you know, I just felt in such terrible danger there. And the Dalai Lama said, oh, yes, of course, you know, you're imprisoned, there's torture and starvation, and you don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. And the monk said, no, 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 it wasn't that at all. I felt in terrible danger of being angry, of becoming angry. And it was, it's just was amazing to me to hear that story and to have a sense of a mind for whom that was the greatest danger. It wasn't anything about self-preservation 
or you know a pleasure of the body it was really wanting so much to guard against those unwholesome mind states that he considered that the greatest danger in the terrible situation of being in prison and tortured so we know very clearly from being on retreat that we can't control the thoughts that arise or even the mind states that arise but it's true that with clarity and mindfulness we have an opportunity to work with those thoughts and those mind states there's a possibility of letting go of them of seeing through them of abandoning them or we can use the skillful means of applying things like antidotes but these efforts to abandon the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome have to really be skillful in and of themselves we don't want to have the opposite effect of what we're actually trying to cultivate in the practice itself and every one of us must learn for ourselves what works what's skillful there's not one right way to cultivate the wholesome and guard against the unwholesome or unskillful sometimes it's possible just to watch with equanimity these states of mind arise these tendencies these moods these thoughts just to be present for them can be sufficient to cut through to take away their power to help us be free of them but at other times the strength of them is as such that we actually need to be a bit more proactive to actually work with them directly as the dalai lama and many others have taught us to do make a conscious effort to be free of them to actually find a way out to find a way to freedom to happiness in the face of difficulty and we really also need to learn how to tune our effort to the level of the task in front of us to the level demanded in each situation as i said you know sometimes just the equanimity may be enough other times it has to be a really strong effort that's required when there's a, a habit of mind that's so entrenched when we're really lost when we're really caught at those times we really need to apply some virious some effort to come out of those states it's not something that's just going to happen easily but these four right efforts are not separated they're really four sides to a single process because in doing one we're bringing about the other you know when we abandon the unskillful or we avoid the unskillful we're actually cultivating the wholesome right there and then so they're very much a piece so we're all it's not like we start at one and then go to two and then three and then four they're very integrated and as we cultivate one the wholesome in cultivating the wholesome we're freeing ourselves from the unwholesome but as i said it's very important not to use this teaching to create more difficult painful mind states not to use it to beat ourselves up to bring more self-judgment but to use it really skillfully i was recently on a, a long metta retreat period of doing brahma vihara practice about 6 weeks of practice my first long metta retreat actually a couple of years ago and about 2 or 3 weeks in 2 weeks into the course i think i really got to that point where i felt i was hopeless that it was hopeless that i was hopeless that i could never do this practice that i couldn't love anyone that my heart was closed that i might as well just pack up and go home right there and then my teacher had slightly changed my instructions just said oh why don't you try this and i took from that little 
slight change of instruction that he thought I wasn't doing it right and that I you know, really needed to do something different because I just wasn't getting it altogether. And I took that little change of instruction and beat myself up for I don't know how long. And I was just going, in, you know, I saw, really saw that I had that image of myself on the top of a slide. And I was so willing and almost eager to take that step onto the slide that would move me right to the depths of dis- depression and despair, you know, where I, nothing would be worthwhile doing. I, I, I might as well just, you know, as I say, give up and go home. But somehow, some, some way, I don't know how, but I'm so grateful, this thought came to me that yes, you know, I could do that and probably feel, you know, some degree of, I don't know what, self-satisfaction in beating myself up that way that I, that I thought I was seeing clearly. Um, and I could wallow in it for however long it would take me to wallow in it. But at some point I realized I would have to come out of it. I would have to actually see that, you know, life wasn't all bleak and gloomy and I wasn't a total failure. You know, I'd been through this experience enough to know that eventually it passed. And I just thought, well, why go through it? You know, why not just (laughs) circumvent that altogether? It was such a clear example of avoiding the unwholesome, of just seeing it for what it is. And so many other times before I hadn't seen it, And I think the reason it was clear for me in this retreat is that not long before that, I'd done another retreat where I had done a a new practice, a different kind of practice, and uh, wasn't feeling that I was doing very well at it. You know, I was being diligent and putting in my effort, but didn't really feel like I was getting it, and you know, how you think everyone else is. And the teacher at one point said, "Um, well, how many people in this room are feeling bliss? And so, you know, I wasn't feeling anything like bliss. I was barely even, you know, mindful, let alone blissful. And I saw, you know, nearly half the people in the room put their hand up. And I just looked around and said, this is hopeless. You know, bliss, I'm as far from bliss as I could possibly be. And I just spent the rest of the retreat literally beating myself up. I didn't enjoy a moment. I didn't get a single benefit out of that retreat. Apart from, I think it was so painful that when this next moment came, the recognition was there of what this process was, and I was able to avoid it. I was able to just step around that great, big, steep slide that I was quite cheerfully going to launch myself on. So at first we spend most of our time overcoming the unwholesome and really being in the trenches, as it were, working with it directly. You know, it's often our experience. I'm sure you can appreciate that, having sat here for five days or so, how much it seems like the difficult stuff is present. But then we do eventually move more to avoiding it, to just being skillful around it, knowing that the possibility is there for it to arise and just choosing not to go there. Eventually, finally, and it's not to say this is, you know, a a completely linear path because we're always moving around in in these efforts, their practices, but we do move more to just cultivating the wholesome and maintaining it. We do get smarter, hopefully, in this process. There's a wonderful parable that I think aligns very well with this um, practice of the four right efforts that I'm going to have to acknowledge I'm borrowing from James this evening, who acknowledges that he got it from somewhere else, so it's, it's, it's doing the rounds. Um, and it's, I, the first time I saw it, actually, Carol told it, so it's really doing the rounds. 
but I remember it being told as like a cartoon strip, that it, um, there was a series of panels, and I'll tell it in the first person. It's, uh, I'm walking down a street. There's a big hole in front of me. I don't see it at all. I fall right in. I don't have any idea where I am. I'm lost. I'm confused. Where am I? How did I get here? What's going on? I struggle and struggle and struggle. Finally, somehow, I find my way out and walk on down the street. The next part is I'm walking down the same street. There's a big hole in front of me. I don't see it at all. I fall in. At first I wonder where I am, but then I remember, oh, the hole. I struggle with it quite a bit. How did I do that again? How did this happen? How did I get here again? But eventually I find my way out and walk on down the street. Next day, walking down the same street, big hole in front of me, don't see it at all, fall right in. But as soon as I fall in, I go, oh, the hole, this is where I am. And I get out fairly quickly. Next day, I walk down the same street. There's a big hole in front of me. I see it and I walk around it. Next day, I walk down a different street. So that's really the process that we go through with cultivating the four right efforts, where at first we're often really lost in these difficult states of mind, difficult tendencies, difficult actions, and we don't have any idea of how we got there. We're really lost, we're really confused, we're so caught up in them, they're just overwhelming, they're our entire experience. But gradually, through going there again and again, we get to know them, and we're bringing to that the desire the wish to get out, to be free of them. And eventually, the skillfulness comes that we actually learn how to not go in that direction at all. So the first Sama Vayama, or right effort, wise effort, skillful action, is to avoid or guard against unwholesome mind states that have not yet arisen. So this is where we're walking down the street and we see the hole. We haven't fallen in yet, but we know it's there. As I said, we know that we actually can't control the thoughts that arise in any moment. You know, they seem to come unbidden. We've watched that process here on retreat. I'm sure you've seen it time and time again. But I think it is true that each moment has a conditioning effect on the next, has a cause and effect on the next moment. And that if we're angry a lot, if we're angry in this moment, there's a big likelihood that we'll be angry in the next moment, that this moment causes or conditions the next moment. But I also think that it's possible that we can decondition these habits of mind, these tendencies of mind, with this very practice of mindfulness, of seeing clearly. And we can then condition new habits of mind, just as these ones, these difficult ones, have been conditioned over the years of our lives with our struggles and difficulties and the challenges that we've faced as, as, as the sort of coping patterns that we've come up with, defenses against the difficulties of the world. We've, we've been conditioned to respond and react in this way. We can, in the same way, condition more wholesome, more skillful ways 
of acting and reacting. There's a wonderful verse, um, the opening verse actually at the Dhammapada, where the Buddha talks about the importance of being aware of our states of mind. The Dhammapada is this wonderful collection of verses and texts. They're usually very beautiful, very short, and very eloquent. And in it he says, Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. If you speak and act with an impure heart, then unhappiness will follow you as the cart follows the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure heart, and then happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. So with this growing appreciation of the cultivation of the four right efforts, we actually learn to avoid situations that challenge our good intentions, that challenge our capacity to be present in skillful ways. So it's like the fourth stage of that story, the parable, where we walk around the hole. We actually learn it's easier not to fall in the hole and then have to struggle to get out. Simpler, easier to avoid the hole altogether. So it's really helpful to create conditions in our lives that don't encourage these negative mind states. The Buddha often talked about how association with the wise is one of the real um, strengths in this practice. It's one of the things that really aids our ability to cultivate these wholesome states of mind. He said, with regard to external factors, I do not envision any other single factor like friendship with admirable people, in being so helpful for a practitioner who is a learner, who has not attained the goal but remains intent on the unexcelled security from bondage. A practitioner who is a friend with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. A practitioner who is a friend to admirable people, one reverential, respectful, doing what her friends advised, alert, mindful, attains step by step the ending of all the fetters. So hopefully that's what we're doing a little bit here on retreat. We're associating with people who share our values, who also want to develop in wisdom and understanding, um, who, who, who have also these goals in mind and can support us in this path. So it's really important to see our thoughts for what they are, because thoughts are often the precipitator of actions, thoughts and moods. We need to be aware of them, to bring our mindfulness to bear on them. In retreat, we have that opportunity to see them for what they are, because here we really often don't have the place to act out on them. You know, there's not much to do here. Sit and walk, sit and walk, eat a few times a day. You know, we really are very contained in what our actions can be here. So it's a wonderful place to learn to work with these tendencies of mind. What we can come to see when we're on retreat, where we have this renunciation of our actions um, by the very format of the retreat, that thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. When we don't see them for what they are, they totally condition our experience of the world and the way we act and feel and 
respond to what's going on around us. But when we see them clearly, we then have a choice of how to act, of knowing whether the action will be unwholesome or wholesome, skillful or unskillful. We don't have to jump on the train of thought that's going to take us away into greed or aversion or hate or irritation or whatever it might be. We can see clearly the unskillful tendencies and learn how to avoid them, how not to get lost in them. The second of the four wise efforts is abandoning or overcoming unwholesome states of mind that have arisen. So this is when we're right in that hole, you know, where, where the, the state of mind is present, however strong it might be, whether it's weak or strong, subtle or not so subtle, the hindrances, the torments of mind that we deal with so often here on retreat, when they're fully present, how to work with them. And of course, there are many, many varieties of hindrances, of these torments of mind, of difficulties. There's anger and fear and worry, desire, greed, lust. Just, you know, the more everyday ones like wanting to gossip or backbite, criticize someone or hurt someone, or can be quite subtle, like thoughts of pride or or self-aggrandizement or even distraction or, or not willingness to be present, boredom. No more subtle thoughts or states of mind. When they've arisen, the first, the most important thing to do is to be mindful of them. When we come to that moment of mindfulness, that's the first step that needs to be taken. And when they're really full-blown, it's not like we, we then can't control the mindfulness. It too, in some ways, comes unbidden. But it is also conditioned by our previous actions. And if we've had enough moments of coming back, the mindfulness is more likely to be present when there's difficulty. So again, though it's unbidden, it's a practice that we can learn to bring awareness, to to have the trigger that when these difficult states are present, that mindfulness can be beneficial, can be helpful. Unless there's mindfulness, unless we're aware of what's going on, there's no way we can do anything about it. There's no way we can work with it unless we bring mindfulness and clarity to the moment. From that moment, from from actually becoming aware that there is a hindrance, a difficulty present, a tendency of mind that may lead to unskillfulness, we need to really cultivate the intention to do something about it and the faith that we can do something about it. We need to really have that as a motivating force in our lives and our practice. So it's not just, oh gosh, anger, you know, I've seen this so many times, what to do sort of thing. It's really to know that there are steps that we can take and to have the faith and the confidence to take those steps, to really have that sincere intention and motivation. We then need to gauge the appropriateness of the response that's needed uh, to really look at the level of this difficulty that's arisen and see, well, what, what, what's the best way of dealing with this? And even though I'm using a lot of words to describe this process, obviously it, doesn't, obviously it doesn't have to be as cumbersome as these steps I'm elaborating. It's really much more a moment-to-moment um, appreciation or a connection with what's going on. So we look and see, well, how strong is this? What, what's the appropriate response that's necessary? Uh, And there's a whole variety of then responses, skillful means that we can bring to that moment. The first one, obviously, is just to be mindful of it. 
that's often just enough to bring a clear, accepting, equanimous mindfulness to this feeling, mood, tendency, habit of mind, whether it's anger or aversion, just to be present with it, is often enough to name it, to know it clearly, to take the fire, the the power, the strength out of it. Or we can move the attention. So in that mindfulness, it can often be being fully present for it, experiencing it in the body, naming it, having a, a real experiential sense of what this anger or this aversion or this fear is. So we're not so caught in the story, not so lost in um, letting it overwhelm us, but really a direct experience using our mindfulness practice. If that perhaps doesn't seem to be diffusing or working enough with whatever's present, we can do some other tactics, like perhaps moving to something more neutral, like the breath, or sounds, giving the mind a bit of space so that the state doesn't uh, occupy all of our experience. Or we can try to insert some sort of space into the situation, whether it's thinking in daily life, it could be just walking away, taking a few deep breaths, actually thinking of something else, turning the mind to something else, to something more pleasant or something wholesome actually doing something else, if it's really that strong, to literally remove oneself from that environment, from that situation. We can also then use reflection. Reflection is a really helpful part of this practice of developing the four right efforts, to see clearly the pain of what happens when we act unskillfully, both for ourselves and others, to look at past actions and their consequences, And it's not, again, to use this reflection to beat ourselves up, but just to have a direct and experiential understanding of the cause and effect of acting unskillfully, that this is what happens. Pain arises, difficulty arises for oneself and for others. And another thing we can do is to actually apply what's called an antidote, to actually try to replace the difficult tendency, difficult state of mind with something wholesome, to literally bring in, do an act of positive reinforcement of something more wholesome. It could be cultivating in the moment something like metta, or patience, or tolerance, or compassion. The Dalai Lama says that the only factor that can give you refuge or protection from the destructive effects of anger or hatred is your practice of tolerance and patience. They're actually tools that we can use to undermine that tendency of mind that moves to anger and hatred, the cultivation of tolerance and patience. So as I said, this process or this practice does become more automatic. It's not like we have to carry around a checklist of what to do when these states of mind arise. It really, with more practice, just like our mindfulness becomes more integrated, more automatic, more seamless uh, through our days of practice, we become to be aware of these unwholesome states more quickly. We see them more clearly for what they are sooner, especially if it's a habitual pattern, one that's arisen quite a bit. It becomes almost like an old friend. Oh, here this is again. Now how to work skillfully with it. 
And sometimes, of course, too, we'll see it for what it is and uh, the tendencies of mind will be too strong. You know, it'll be like that part of the, the parable where we still fall in the hole even though we see it. And we have to learn how to work skillfully with that situation as well. That to add more negativity in the, in the form of self-judgment is, again, not helpful. To really see the power of cultivating the wholesome and not adding more difficulty To add more judgment or self-hatred was not the Buddha's message. That was not his intention in teaching us this practice. It's really helpful, too, to bring awareness to obsessive or fixated thoughts, ones that repeat themselves, because they're often about or the seeds of unskillful actions or mind states or tendencies. To really be aware of when the mind gets in a groove or a rut, to have the clarity of mind to to track that process and to see what's going on, to connect with it. So the different states of mind and and, and ways of working more actively with them. For anger or aversion, working with difficult situations or difficult people, The Dalai Lama, again in this book, The Art of Happiness, talks about often using reasoning, reflection, and analysis to work with difficult mind states. He says, Here, I think, we would be dealing with a situation where you might need to make some effort. Spend some time seriously searching for a different perspective on the situation. Not just in a superficial way, in a, in a very pointed and direct way. You need to use all your powers of reasoning and look at the situation as objectively as possible. For instance, you might reflect on the fact when you are really angry at someone, you tend to perceive them as having 100% negative qualities. Just as when you are strongly attracted to someone, the tendency is to see them as having 100% positive qualities. But this perception does not correspond with reality. If your friend, who you view as so wonderful, were to purposely harm you in some way, suddenly you would become acutely aware that they weren't composed of 100% good qualities. Similarly, if your enemy, the one you hate, were to sincerely beg your forgiveness and continue to show you kindness, it's unlikely that you would continue to perceive them as 100% bad. So even though when you're angry at someone, you might feel that the person has no positive qualities, the reality is that nobody is 100% bad. They must have some good qualities if you search hard enough. So the tendency to see someone as completely negative is due to your own perception, based on your own mental projection, rather than the true nature of that individual. In the same way, a situation that you initially perceive as 100% negative may have some positive aspects to it. But I think that even if you have discovered a positive angle to a bad situation, that alone often is not enough. You still need to reinforce that idea. So you may need to remind yourself of that positive angle many times until gradually your feeling changes. Generally speaking, once you're already in a difficult situation, it isn't possible to change your attitude simply by adopting a particular thought once or twice. 
Rather, it's a thorough process of learning and training and getting used to new viewpoints that enable you to deal with difficulty. The Dalai Lama reflected, that was him speaking and then there's a comment. The Dalai Lama reflected for a moment and adhering to his usual pragmatic stance, he added, If, however, in spite of your efforts, you do not find any such positive angles or perspective to a person's act, then for the time being, the best course of action may simply be to try to forget about it. (laughs) He actually says that time and time again in this book. You know, if you really can't deal with the situation, forget about it. You know, go do something else. And again, at first, when I heard him say that, well, that's not very helpful. I mean, how do you do that? But it's, there is a real wisdom to that. It's just literally removing ourselves from the cause of our suffering. I mean, we don't hold our hand in the fire where we're intelligent enough to move away from that. And it's the same advice. It takes some strength of mind to be able to do that. And obviously, the thoughts may arise again and again. But just as in our mindfulness practice, we say, okay, I'm coming back to the breath in this practice of cultivating the wholesome and avoiding the unwholesome, we say again and again, I'm not going down that path. I'm not cultivating that negativity or that anger. You know, I mightn't be able to do anything really positive at this time, but I'm not going to dwell in it. I'm not going to indulge in it. So, hey, let it, let it go. Just forget about it. So a different response is needed. You know, there are obviously many more ways of responding, many more types of situations, but in each one, a different response is needed, a different strength of response is needed. We each have to learn for ourselves. It's a practice. It's a cultivation. So the third of the four right efforts is cultivating and fostering, encouraging wholesome states of mind or skillful actions that have not yet arisen. Well, if they've not yet arisen, how do we do that? You know, they're not present. But I think there are things we can do to bring about wholesome states of mind, to actually cultivate them when they weren't present. And metta practice is the practice that we do here to actively do that. We've been doing a little bit every day, and hopefully you have just a taste of that possibility, that we can actually turn our mind to the wholesome, to the cultivation of this well-wishing, for ourselves and for all beings, um, and actually enlarge that capacity in our hearts and our minds. It doesn't mean to say it's an easy practice. The practice of metta is not easy. Uh, It's not like we can just say the words and the feeling automatically flows, and we're full of love and the milk of human kindness. I know for myself, as I told you earlier, that is not the case. Metta is really a practice of purification and investigation, of seeing how the mind, body, heart interrelate and work when we turn it in this direction. The opposites often arise when we practice metta. We're sitting here trying to cultivate loving kindness and we find anger or aversion or irritation arise. And that's when the purification happens, when that process is going on. When that happens, the skillful thing to do is then to turn back to our mindfulness practice and directly be with those experiences. Other ways to cultivate wholesome that hasn't yet arisen is to actively, physically put ourselves in places that bring that out of us, that help that to be more available, to be more likely to happen. An obvious one for me is doing service work. Is, is, is doing community work, is going out there and, and doing what feels right 
for me to help other people, to be involved in some way, in some organization, in some way of, of actively serving other people. I was just uh, b- before in the teacher room, and there's this wonderful book called Voices from the Heart in Celebration of America's Volunteers, and I just happened to open it. I haven't read the book. And there was this wonderful description of the benefits of volunteering. It's about teens, actually, teenagers that were doing volunteer work. And it says, When teens were asked what benefits they derived from their volunteer service, the results were somewhat surprising, because some scholars assumed that the primary benefits would be self-serving, such as learning new skills or getting one's foot in the door for a future job. In fact, teens reported that the primary benefits they derived from their volunteering were learning to respect others, gaining satisfaction from helping others, learning to be helpful and kind, and learning to get along and relate with one another. So it was just amazing that it wasn't what they got out of it was not what they thought. They actually learned these very positive and wholesome qualities in their service work. Participating in a Dharma community is a way of making possible the cultivation of wholesome that hasn't yet arisen. When we're around people who also value this and we see some skillful actions that someone else who's an inspiration to us performs, that can be a motivating force in encouraging those qualities in ourselves. Coming on retreats is definitely a way to cultivate the wholesome, though I know at times it may seem like we're doing the opposite, that we're actually here um, cultivating aversion or difficulty or pain or suffering, Um, but we're not really here for that. There is a cultivation of the wholesome that's happening. Joining a sitting group, hearing the Dharma every week, um, doing a daily practice, all of these things are helpful in cultivating the wholesome, in making it possible, more likely for the wholesome to arise in the next moment. So we really need to use some reflection and some discernment to come to see what cultivates the wholesome for us, become aware of this cause and effect cycle, because as I said, there's a conditioning process of one moment to the next, and we can really look and see in our experience what is more likely to bring about the wholesome and actively participate in that. And so there are all the practices that the Buddha spoke about, the Eightfold Path, um, taking and working with the precepts, really taking on a precept, whether it's for a day or a week or a month, and learning to work really skillfully with it, cultivating the factors of awakening, things like mindfulness and investigation, concentration, the paramis. I mean, there's an endless list of places and ways we can uh, cultivate and practice the wholesome. Reading and studying the Dhamma so that it's just more part of our lives. I think for me it's really been a helpful part of my cultivating wholesome states of mind that haven't yet arisen. Just as I'm doing more and more study as my, my um, uh, reading of the Dhamma is extended, uh, you know, in, in the coming to teach, learning to to understand more deeply the Buddha's teachings. There's a way in which it just flows more easily. You know, it becomes more of a part of my way of viewing the world. So study and reading really helps. As I spoke about earlier, association with the wise, spending time with people who inspire us, who we respect for the way they manifest in the world. And I think it rubs off. And just our commitment to awaken, 
Our commitment in each moment to awaken is something that cultivates the wholesome and makes it possible for the next moment of mindfulness, of clarity, to be there. The last effort is to maintain wholesome states that have arisen. And I know there are times where that may seem so fleeting, and how on earth can I do that? You know, we, we have such a low view, usually, of our capacity for the wholesome. We usually don't appreciate the good qualities that we have. We tend so much to self-deprecation and self-judgment that the good qualities that are there, we just don't acknowledge, we don't appreciate. Asian cultures are actually much more in touch with the benefits of this practice of appreciating the wholesome, of really delighting in meritorious actions. I've just spoken to Asian people who really bring a great joy to the acts of generosity or dana that they've done, and they really let it feed them, they let it motivate them to do more acts. They they don't have a sense that talking about them or appreciating, appreciating them is any sort of act of pride, which I actually don't think it is. I think it's actually a wholesome cultivation. Because reflecting on these good acts actually reinforces them, makes it more likely that they'll we'll be able to do them the next time. So again, we have to bring our practice of mindfulness to bear. We need to know when these good states, these wholesome states, these skillful states or actions, thoughts, feelings, moods, whatever, are present. We need to clearly acknowledge them, to know that they're there. We always seem to be so focused on, in our practice, the difficulties. You know, we talk so much about the hindrances and the torments of mind. And uh, there was one yogi who talked about, it felt like in his practice he was always on pain patrol, you know, where it's just, what's this pain? What's this difficulty? What's this place where I'm caught? It's so much a, an emphasis in our practice of what's, what's the obstruction? What's the difficulty? We need to pay as much attention to the places of calm, of equanimity, of generosity, of joy, and really see them for what they are. Really reflect on them, feel them, embody them. So we can reflect on the happiness these states, these actions, these tendencies bring ourselves and that they bring others. You know, we see the effect on those around us when we act in ways that are skillful, that are wholesome, that are beneficial. So we need to give ourselves permission to really feel them, to embody them, to be present for them, to know that they're there. Don't deny yourself this pleasure. It's a wholesome pleasure. It's a wholesome cultivation. It's really very, very important. It's a positive feedback for the the tendency for that to be more likely to be present in the next moment, in the next opportunity for the wholesome to arise because we've really gotten in touch with, we've really allowed ourselves to feel the delight that can be present when we reflect on, when we experience in this moment a wholesome state of mind, an act of generosity or kindness. There can just be an enjoyment of that lightness of mind and heart. You know, the smile that comes on the face, the, the, the um, sense of connection, of rightness about that act. Really feel, feel it. Really give yourself permission to be there for it. It's a very important and very wholesome thing to do. 
So these four right efforts are very much like working with the precepts, um, as we said in the beginning. They're training guidelines. They're, they're ways in which we can work with our experience. They're not, you know, do this, don't do that. You know, that as I said, it's not for creating more difficult mind states, really to work with them skillfully. And as we come to integrate this practice more and more, the light bulb goes on more quickly. You know, when the unwholesome is there, we recognize it more quickly. When the wholesome is there, we recognize it more quickly and appreciate it. And so the simple shorthand for these four are avoid, overcome, develop, and maintain. It's sometimes helpful just to keep it really simple. So if you remember anything from this talk, just remember those four words. Avoid, overcome, develop, and maintain. And really the point is to focus on the possibility that these four right efforts bring to us of greater happiness and freedom. That's the point of this practice. Howie mentioned uh, this teaching of the Buddha just briefly, but I'll, I'll give it in its detail. The Buddha said, Abandon what is unskillful, monks. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. <laughs> Repetition is good, you know, just like Carol the other day, James, room three. James, this is the same sort of thing. If the abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. (laughs) But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Please, you've got it. It's like the chorus. (laughs) Develop what is skillful, monks. It is possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible to develop what is skillful, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible to develop what is skillful, I bet the Buddha didn't know he was so amusing. I say to you, develop what is skillful. If the development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. And we know that for 2,500 years, people have been practicing this teaching and abandoning what is unskillful and developing what is skillful. As the Dalai Lama says, inner discipline is the basis of a spiritual life, the fundamental method of achieving happiness. So I'd like to finish with a poem by Lao Tzu from of the Stephen Mitchell book, The Enlightened Heart, it's actually from the Tao Te Ching. Some say that my teaching is nonsense. Others call it lofty or impractical. But those who have looked inside themselves, this nonsense makes perfect sense. And to those who put it into practice, this loftiness have, has roots that go deep. I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and in thoughts, 
you return to the source of being, patient with both friends and enemies. You accord with the way things are, compassionate towards yourself. You reconcile all beings in the world. So let's just sit together for a moment. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive 